Turn with me over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Every year at this time, we highlight what our mission is. We talk about our vision and our mission. Vision is what you want to be, where you want to go. Mission is what you want to do, what God has called you to do that helps you get to your vision, complete your vision. And our mission is very easy. It's threefold. One, to encounter Christ. We want everybody who comes through this door to get to know Jesus. It's not about rules and regulations. It's not about formality. It's not about encountering a system or a church, although all of that can be included in. It's primarily about encountering Jesus, getting introduced to him and letting him begin to change your life too. Experiencing community. That once you encounter Christ, he doesn't want you to, to be by yourself. That he said, I'm about building my church. And we want to be a part of a community. Indeed, his family. Brothers and sisters working together, trying to figure out how to live their lives together and do something great for God. To manifest what Jesus said, that they will know that you are my disciples by how much you care for one another, how much you love one another, community. And then lastly, to extend the kingdom. That we aren't just here for ourselves. We are here to take it out there. We have to extend the four walls of the church to include everybody who doesn't know Jesus. That's our mission, threefold. Counter Christ, experience community, extend the kingdom. And today we're going to talk about encountering Christ and contextualize our idea of it within a passage. We're going to highlight the rich young ruler, who he was, what he did, and where he failed. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Speaking of Jesus, it says, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But at these words he was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Lord, help us as we study. There are three passages in Scripture that highlight this same encounter. One found in Matthew chapter 19, one found in Luke chapter 18, and this one. They all give kind of a different view, a full orb view, if you put them all together, of who this person was and how it happened. Matthew calls him a young man. Luke says he is a ruler. All three of them amplify the fact that he had somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to eight zeros after his one. He was fairly wealthy. And when the Bible talks about he owned much goods, puts an adverb in front of a noun or a verb, puts an adjective in front of a noun, an adverb in front of a verb, very wealthy, it says it's not just normal wealth. We're not talking about the kind of wealth we have. Oh, we're considered in Loudoun County, Fairfax, some of the most wealthy people on the planet. 
but you still got to go to work. You get up every day knowing you have a job to do. This brother didn't have a job. He was an amazing young man, though. And he had what you would think is what everybody would want. He was rich. He was young. And he was a ruler. Had enough money to do what he wanted, get what he wanted. Had enough youth to be able to enjoy it for a long time. And he was in charge. Isn't that the recipe for success that everybody wants? I mean, even we older folk like me, I'm 52. We still try to stretch back and find our youth, aren't we? Anti-aging cream. <laughs> All these rejuviate, rejuviating, rejuvenating tonics we can take in pills in order to make ourselves feel younger. Oh, I would love to be able to touch my youth, my children. I got a basketball court, half court I built in my backyard. Barely half court. Built it when I moved in 10, 12 years ago. And, and uh, my kids take me out there and, and play with me. play with me in the most derogatory sense possible. They act like daddy can play, and then they laugh all the way to the hole. <laughs> I used to be able to touch the rim. In fact, grab on the rim. I'm only 5'8". I used to be able to, I had a little bit of hop, just a little hop. Now I can't touch it. Can't touch it. It's just flat embarrassing. A friend of mine was in the house. We were talking, having a good time. My children walk in. The friend of mine says to one of my boys, boy, you're getting big. You lifting weights? He said, yeah, I'm all, my chest is already bigger than my daddy's. I said, come here, boy. <laughs> Let me cave your chest in for a minute. All these, they remind me of my age, and I don't like it. And I'm doing everything I can to try to reach back to my youth because it feels better than my age. All of us want a little bit more of whatever we've got. Whatever we have just isn't enough. And we'd love to have a little bit more youth, a little bit more money, a little bit more power. This fella had it all. He was living the life. He would have been on cribs. <laughs> he, he was what everybody wanted to be yet. None of that stuff satisfied him. Couldn't find any, 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 any way for his itch to be scratched in his soul. Everything that was tried just didn't fit it. Round pegs and square holes, nothing worked. There wasn't enough power, wasn't enough money, wasn't enough virility in order to satisfy this guy. And so from the distance, he and Jesus happened to catch one another, recognize one another. And this fella said, oh, I got to go find, I got to go get with him. He's got something I don't have, I heard about him. Now at this point, Jesus was at the height of his ministry. He had never been more popular than this point right here. And he was about to become even more popular than that. And that on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, he was going to have people laying down their cloaks and throwing palm branches down, saying, Hosanna, save us now, recognizing him as the Messiah. The whole environment was building. The bandwagon was growing. Everybody wanted to leap on. They wanted to get a piece of this, Jesus. And so as his popularity was growing, even people who weren't interested in him were finding out about him. And this man was, 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 was going someplace and Jesus was going someplace else. And he decided, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to change my direction and go after him. Now, you have to understand the impact of what is being 
what is being read here and, and what is said. It says that this man, while Jesus was going to a certain place, this rich young ruler saw him and he ran to him. Now, you need to know that men of dignity and power, folks who were in charge and had nobility, did not run any place. They had other people run for them. Running indicated that something was controlling you and you not it. It meant that you weren't in charge. Today, we see people running on the street. We have a jogging culture, don't we? And we don't think anything of it. Fellow running, jogging, oh, he's getting in shape. Back then, nobody ran to get in shape. You, you just, three, you walk three to four miles a day because that's the way it was. You, even if you rode a horse or a donkey someplace, you were exercising your muscles. You ever ridden a horse? That's tiring. You're using your legs all day long, your hands and arms. You are working. Well, when we get in our four wheels, we just... <laughs> ain't no work to that. And so we've had to develop a whole culture around exercise because what we do is artificial. It doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to being fit. So folk didn't, didn't run. If they looked at our culture today and they saw a fellow running down the street, they'd say, where's he going? What's wrong with him? They wouldn't understand what we were doing. So you did not run. And if you were wealthy, if you had rulership, you had other people run for you. When, when this man saw Jesus, I imagine the conversation that, that occurred around the people who were his servants were, hey, 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 I'll, what do you need? I'll go get it. Don't demean yourself. You, you have too much respect to be out there running like that. And people might see you. You'll lose some dignity. No, I'll do it. Hey, be quiet. This is on me. And he saw Jesus and he ran. And the goal was this. I'm convinced the guy wasn't running just to get an answer to a question. I'm convinced he was running in order to find life. It wasn't just to, to fill in the blank. He was running and sacrificing all dignity because he needed something desperately. And my sense is that he was hoping there was, a, there was a moment where he could connect with Christ and be a part of what he was doing. Can't prove that, but that, that's just the, the feeling you get. Otherwise, he would have wrote a letter. Here, just fax me something. Email me something. You want an answer? I'll give you an answer. But he was trying to find something more than just the verbal answer to a verbal request. My sense is that he probably wanted to walk with him. So he ran to encounter him. Unfortunately, we seem to have it reversed. We're walking, hoping that we just encounter him someday. And then when we get to him, we run away. We find someplace else to go because the, the requirements that Jesus has about us following him, we ain't interested in. Oh, it took me 20 years to figure out that I'd missed I'd missed so many opportunities to connect with him. I never ran. I was just walking, strolling through life with the attitude of, well, if he wants me, he can find me. Someday maybe our paths will intersect. Once I get mine, then I'll find him. Once I finish my career pursuits, then I'll come. Once I, once I accomplish all of my goals, then I'll add God to my life. Strolling through life, no hurry to try to find out what he wanted me to do. No hurry and tried to repent. I didn't have the urgency that this man did. 
And this man had everything that I wanted to pursue. And he felt he needed to get there in a hurry. Our hope is this. My hope is this. That you would run to God. And you would not wait for the 911 calamity in order to do so. Oh, when things are bad, we all know how to run. We can pick them up and put them down then. God, where are you? I need you desperately. What about when things are going well? Is there anything that makes you run to him? This man had everything, yet he was missing one thing. Jesus said, one thing you're missing. We'll get to that in a minute. He ran. And as he was running... He got there, and the first thing he did was he bowed. He says he knelt. I don't know if it was instinctual or just out of respect or he really knew something, but he knelt. You know, there was an encounter that asked the exact same question over in Luke chapter 10 where a lawyer came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it says that the lawyer was trying to test him. The spirit between, the, 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 the difference of the spirit between the, the man who was rich and young and powerful and the lawyer was that one was trying to have a theological discussion and have a te-a-te moment with Jesus. Let, let, can, can, can we, I want to ask you a question about your theology. I'd like to explore the possibilities of philosophy with you. And what it means to encounter God. Can we please have a conversation? Can I, can I insult you just for a minute? God is not interested in what you're thinking. I mean, he loves you. He cares for you deeply. Thinks the world of you or he would not have sent his son to die. But he's just not impressed with your intellect. And anytime he asks a question of you, he's not looking for advice. He's not looking for information. The reason he asks questions is so that you might know what you don't know. Such as, Adam, where are you? Like God didn't know. Like God didn't know. Adam, where are you? Adam just sinned, ate from the tree from which you should not have eaten. Adam, where are you? You think God really didn't know? He was trying to let Adam know. You don't know how far you've gotten from me. Where are you? Answer my question so you can acknowledge how far you are away. Here we have this ruler who needs to ask some questions, but he, he doesn't even know the answers to them. It's important that we come to the point of understanding that God is trying to inquire about us so that we will know who we are and what we are not. This lawyer comes to Jesus, says, what might I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. How do they read to you? He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, oh, you've answered well. Do this and you'll live. And then the man put the hook in. He said, well, who is my neighbor? He was trying to get out of it and trying to see if Jesus might be found in some deficit of theological accuracy. And Jesus then begins to give the account, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Whereby he says, your neighbor is anybody you find in trouble. Which didn't satisfy the, the, the lawyer at all. This ruler is not asking like the lawyer to have a te-a-te. 
to have a moment of discussion about theology. He's really wanting something that he doesn't have. And we think that he's asking something from the depth of his being from which he has some experience because it says he's rich and he's young. Now, if you're young, it's probably in the neighborhood of an uh, early teenager or in his early 20s or late teenager, early 20s. Generally speaking, he probably had not had enough time to earn all the money he's got. So he probably got this from daddy. Knowing that I have inherited what I have inherited, and that inheritance still hasn't filled my soul, I know there's something else for me. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I can't earn it. I know that. What can I do to inherit it? He had a, he had a hole as, as wide as the Mississippi. And Jesus says something to him <clears throat> that that probably embarrasses him a little bit. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I'm, I think Jesus asked that question because there was a time when God revealed who Christ was to people, i.e. Peter. Peter had no idea who Jesus was until the Father revealed it. He said, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Eh, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? Oh, you are the Son of the living God. God, you're amazing. Oh, I got this information. Ah, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I think Jesus was asking to see, you call me good. Why? Do you know something? Has God revealed who I am to you? I think there was a possibility of this man taking Judas' spot. Jesus knew Judas was a bad apple. Somebody was going to take his spot. Why not be this guy? Do you know something? Now, unfortunately, I think there's a long pause between verse 18 and 19. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And what we see there is the obvious omission of a response from the rich young ruler. He doesn't say a thing. Not a thing. Which means when Jesus asked the question, the rich young ruler kind of went, I'm supposed to have a good answer, aren't I? I ain't got a good answer. I don't know. I was just being respectful. That's all I was being. Good teacher. That's all. I was just trying to be kind. I have no idea who you are, dude. None, none, none. None of that came out of his mouth. But Jesus just sat there looking at him as he had a blank stare on his face. And he said, okay, obviously you don't get it. Okay, well, let's move on. You know what you're supposed to do. And he listed out the commands. Now, the commands he listed out are very interesting. They tell a whole lot about how Jesus helps to explore, helps us to explore the depths of our own soul by allowing him to use a backhoe of word and theology to to unearth things that we might see in our own life. So he says, do these commandments. And he lists the ones that are found in the last six parts of the Ten Commandments, not the first four, four. So it's all about human relations. Don't murder, don't steal, make sure you honor mama and daddy, make sure you don't bear false witness, all about our relationship, but nothing about the first four, and the first four are all about our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. Have no other gods before me, make no graven images, don't take my name in vain, and keep the Sabbath. Doesn't mention anything about those, but just the last six in those categories. And the guy says, well, I've kept all that from my youth up. Letting him understand how God is beginning to unearth stuff so he can come to understanding what it means to know his own need. And Jesus said, one thing you lack, one thing you lack. 
Go sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Oh, we can identify with this fellow. And those folks say, well, pastor, I don't have that much money. Because it says the guy was wealthy and he went away very, very sad because he didn't want to sell everything he had. Pastor, I'm not that wealthy. I mean, I realize it would be tough for me to sell all I got, but I'm not rich like him. You'd be surprised the things that you value above God's will. You've got an abundance of thought at times, too much of it, that competes with good theology and what it means to call him and practice the lordship of Christ in your life. You have an elevated sense of your own humanity. Some of you are very wealthy with pride. You won't humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because you think too much of yourself. Some of you are rich with the idea about what your career should be. And the last thing you want to do is bring that under the authority of Christ. You want to establish your own. You want to get yours before you ever come to the place where you're going to give it to him. You bring things. You have things that you hold, that you compete with God's attention for. He says, I want it. You say, I want it. I'm not willing to sacrifice that for you yet. I mean, I know you, my God, you saved me and I'm grateful for it. But you don't understand, Lord. I've got to do this. I want this so bad. There are so many places we think we know how to get to and where we ought to go that when we get there, we won't like it even if we do. The destinations that we have are so far below the standard to which God has called us, yet because we have not opened our eyes and perceived what he wants for us, we settle for mediocrity. We always go below the the privilege and live there that God has called us to. The Lord wants us to release the stuff that we consider valuable because he knows it's not. We just can't see it yet. Sell everything you got, give it to the poor because there's treasure in heaven for you. I've got something better for you, boy. You get to hang out with me. You get to know me. Oh, the privilege of hanging out with the God of the universe while he was on the planet. What a deal. On top of that, I'm going to give you treasure in heaven. The stuff you got here is going to pass away. Moth and rust are going to eat it. Those fine clothes you got going to be gone in a minute. And that which you don't let just sit around and get eaten away, you won't like it. It'll give you, get, t- take that new camel you just got. It's going to get rust on it, if you will. Camry, Honda. After about five years, all the newness wears off. I need a new car. I don't like this no more. Everything you have on the planet is either going to become obsolete, waste away, or no longer satisfy you. You might as well do what God wants you to do with it so you can gain so much more. And through this passage, Jesus, especially in Matthew 19, he amplifies it. The disciples are sitting there looking at this encounter, and they're thinking, boy, this dude's blessed. See, the Hebrew mindset was one that said this. If someone is, is, is wealthy, they are favored by God. If they're a Jewish man and they are wealthy, they are favored by God because they looked at Deuteronomy 28 and said, if you obey me, I'll bless you, and this will happen to you. Over again, the blessings of God will come upon you and overtake you, and most of them were material in their orientation. 
And so Jesus said, when this guy went away, oh, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in. To which the disciples said, well, who can't get in? If people who are blessed by God can't get in the kingdom, who can? He said, oh, things are impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. And then the disciples say, now, wait a minute. Now, we, we, we had some resources, and, and we've given up everything to follow you. So what is in it for us? Jesus says something beautiful. And the disciples were really in a quandary because they couldn't figure this out. Jesus had just messed up all their theology. And he says, I want you to know anybody who has left mama, daddy, farm, business, family for my sake and the gospels will not fail to receive a hundred times more here and eternal life to come. God wants you to give up your one thing that is standing between you and him so he can give you so much more. You're the quietest crowd I've had this morning. The thing you value so much he wants to bring greater value to by giving you eternal things, treasures that never pass away in glory and a sense of eternal life like you've never had before. And when you think about it, would any self-respecting woman go to the altar with her man when the man brings his mistress with him? There's not a woman around who say, I do to that. Why in the world do you think God is going to let you compete with his affection with something else. He's not going to stand for it. Give it up to follow me. One thing missing. We've all got that one thing. And not only do, not only are we challenged to give up the one thing when we come to him, boy, we're challenged to give up the one things as long as we serve him. Because he blesses us with stuff while we serve him. Just ask Abraham. Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your boy to me. The conversation that we don't hear is, you mean the one you gave me? You mean that one? The one you said Sarah was going to have a child, and it was a miraculous baby, and, and you said you're going to bring the Messiah through this one, and all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed through this one, and the land was going to be given through this one. You want me to give this one boy that you blessed me with the promise you want me to give him back to you yeah okay even the stuff he gives us he requires back so that we don't wrap our soul around it see our soul is so so tending to gravitate toward the material and the natural that God continually must test us and say give me that give me that me that I can't tell you how many cars I have sold in the ground just given to folk money given away resources that my wife and I looked at one and I said well you sure I said yep God's calling us to do it we can't become attached to anything other than him we will not let one thing separate us from him one thing Jesus said you're missing do this and you'll have eternal life he went away sad because he just couldn't. Change is hard. But change is, is hard only because we don't see what change is going to get us. 
I'm going to wait for an amen. Thank you. I close with this. Peter's preaching. Jesus had risen from the dead. He has gone to, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He's poured out the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 upon the disciples. The disciples are now speaking in other tongues. Powers hit them, and, and they're spilling out into the street. Everybody in Jerusalem is, is listening to this, and they're seeing these Galileans who have this country accent. Just, just don't talk like New Yorkers and nothing. And now they are speaking in the exact dialect of everybody else who has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast in all the languages of the world, the exact dialect. I mean, you might be able to get a language, but you never get the dialect perfect. It says they were speaking in the exact dialect. It was a sign to everybody, so much so that everybody said the only way this can happen to Galileans is if they draw. They got to be drunk. I'm just telling you, they got to be drunk. They, nobody, they can't talk like They talk like this. They can't talk right. To which Peter stands up and says, it's not like you suppose we are drunk. And he begins to preach only in, in response to their question. So all he's doing is giving an explanation, but it turns into a sermon that's powerful. And at the very end of it, in, in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, he says, know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, after 20-minute sermon, they get to this point. These people are all ears. And they're Jewish, remember, in their orientation. That's how they grew up. And so they're listening, and they understand what Christ means. Christ is the Greek version of Messiah. And the Messiah was the person that all of humanity in the Jewish perspective had been waiting for to come and set up this kingdom, as in the days of Solomon, a kingdom whose, whose end would never be, whose expansion would ever be, and who would have peace and prosperity unparalleled a kingdom unlike any in the history of the world that's what the messiah was to do to lift everybody's burdens and to bring help to anybody who needed it oh a rulership on the planet such as was being done in heaven that's what the messiah was to do every generation had hoped they were the generation that would be that would be blessed to have him and now he was sent to this generation and they killed him Lest we get self-righteous and think we wouldn't have done that? Yes, you would have. Yes, we would have. See, all Jesus did was come bring truth. They didn't respond well to truth. Maybe you respond well to truth. So if you do, just take this exhortation to all the people you know who don't. Husbands, when your wives tell you about something in your own life, I know your natural response is, thank you, my love. God has sent you to me as a gift from heaven to explain to me my error. And I am so grateful that you have identified my wrong. I repent to you in sackcloth and ashes, and I am grateful for your exhortation. Isn't that the response all you husbands give? Huh. What about when your friend comes and tells you, you know, you need to stop clubbing around. Thank you, my friend. You are helping me so much. God has sent you to me. That wasn't a response? Why do you think you would have responded any differently to Jesus when he pointed out all your flaws? All of us bucket. We always resist when somebody identifies things we've done wrong because we want to preserve our own life. We would have done the same thing that these Jewish people did. So we need to identify with their sin as if we had been there doing it. You crucified the Christ. Now, if you had murdered somebody, you wouldn't do that. But if you had murdered somebody and you found out he was alive three days later, 
Would it matter where the plane was going? I'm just saying, wouldn't you like to show up at Dulles at the nearest ticket counter and give them your credit card and say, I don't care, just put me on it? Because you realize you gave that dude your best shot. And he's probably only thinking about you right now and how to get you back. Would it matter where the flight was going? Just get me out of D.C. And what if it was God that you did that to? Where are you going to go? These people are listening to Peter. Know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There wasn't a bow your head and pray. There wasn't a moment where he began to explain. It just stopped talking. And there was this response spontaneously from the people. Peter, like what? What can we? How mad is he at us? I mean, what? I, we really, we really like blew it. He, we killed this boy. And uh, like, is there any, is he going to kill us? Is, is he going to squash us like, like bugs? Is, is there anything we can do? Verse 38. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what can we do? To which Peter said, Yeah, there's something you can do. If you repent and you get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, verse 38, and, 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 and then you get to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the promise will be for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Those people listened to Peter. And they sat there. And when Peter said that, I imagine they looked at one another and said, Dude, did, did he just say all we need to do is repent and then God gives us a gift for killing his boy? Is that what he said? You mean? I'm first in line. I want to repent. I want to repent. Go. Stand behind me. Get behind me. Get behind me. Right now. Get behind me. I'm first, Peter. Oh, we hear repentance differently then, don't we? When we understand what we deserve for what we've done, the consequences of our sin then we hear that repentance is not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. For this young man, he didn't hear it like that. Giving away all he had was not something he got to do. It was something he had to do. So he went away sad. I'm begging you, don't go away sad today. Repent. Understand that this God... He just thinks different. You kill my boy? If I forgive you, I've, I've, I've stepped it up. I have really gone above and beyond. I'm in a new place. I felt God in a special way. I ain't trying to bless you at Christmas. I ain't trying to bless you on your birthday. I'm not trying to give you any gifts. God forgave him and then gave him gifts. He just thinks differently than us. It's not that we have to repent. 
and have to change our life and have to stop going to the club and have to stop sleeping around and have to stop doing drugs and have to stop lying and have to stop. You get to. And then he gives you gifts, treasure in heaven, eternal life. And the list goes on and on and on about how good he wants to treat you. This is what it means to encounter Christ. He is amazing. Let's pray. Daddy, I'm asking you to please help us. Please help us to always look at the invitation you give us as a privilege rather than a duty.